0: This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitchio, and I promise I know how to say that intro.
1: Wait for the breakers. I am Stephen Caradini, and I, I can also say it, but I never do. That's not my job. <laughs> so today, we're going to be talking about what underpins a good chunk of the book's theoretical and epistemological premise, which is critical race theory. Yep. We're just going to jump right into it. So critical race theory comes from critical theory. Critical theory is a uh, epistemology that's based on interpretation. It comes from two major fountainheads. One, which is Marxist interpretive economic thought. And secondly, from uh, interpretation of literature. And you might think, wait, what? And that's because there's a long-standing academic historical approach to literature that attempts to uh, treat literature as sociology, as a window into the time periods in which the books were written or the short stories or whatever they are, and to interpret the cultures and ideas of the surrounding environment, the surrounding culture of the author through the lens of that material interpreting it and thus coming to conclusions about aspects of well, it was wrong with it like critical theory right so those two ends are different fountainheads that end up coming together to form critical theory and then critical race theory on top of that is the idea that the interpretation of the world literally, the the sociological space of the world, the ways that we interact, the ways that we do life in the digital and real lived embodied world are necessarily affected by the way that race operates in the world. So this idea that when we interpret the world, we can't avoid doing it racially. Some people get to do it less overtly, If you have certain forms of privilege in certain cultures, you can go about it in the dominant sort of position where you don't have to think about race all that much. Whereas people who are in different situations, who are in the minority position, do have to think about race all the time and it affects how they go through the world. And so critical theory on top of racial theory is interpreting the sociological experience of the world through the idea that race is always invoked, no matter what you're doing, whether or not you recognize it. Right. I would add to that
0: summary only that both critical theory in general and critical race theory in particular not only describe these things in, in the way Stephen just outlined, but particularly tend to talk in terms of power and who has it and who does not along yes. many different kinds of lines. Often this gets closely integrated with ideas of intersectionality, that is that these all intersect in various ways. So critical theory also has much to say about the relationships and dynamics between men and women, and in particular, power, and how in various societies, usually most directly applied to Western societies, but in in all societies that get subjected to this analysis, men often have sort of defaults and norms assigned to them that women butt up against experientially and have to work with the grain of to succeed or have to actively try to push against if they wish to engage in countervailing practices and approaches and the same kinds of things then applying to race, you can see how if this is your frame, then you would say that if it's Harder for a woman because the default norms in a given context are for men, for good or for ill, even leaving aside the the judgments there— And likewise, if it's harder for a black person than a white person, because in this culture, white is assumed as a default or norm, then it would be sort of easiest for a white man and hardest for a black woman as they stand at the intersection of these different relationships and particularly different relationships of power, sometimes explicit, but often just implicit in the norms and habits and practices of a society.
1: Like assuming in your AI that white is the default race. Right.
0: And in the example we talked about briefly that Simone Brown gets to at the very end of the book in her epilogue last time, training your webcam software so that it recognizes white faces in their context more easily and more accurately and therefore responds to them for... Tracking them around a room as they move around or so on much more easily than a black or brown face because of differences yeah. in contrast. And So,
1: so on. what Chris just outlined is intersectionality, but also black feminism in that there are ways that you mm-hmm. as a black woman operate in the world that are marginalized in a variety of ways. Critical theory talks a lot about marginalization, talks a lot about oppression and the oppressed. These are all ways that they grapple with the differences in power and how people with little power live their lives either to the side of, against, or avoiding the, the powerful who are trying to do subjugating things to them. So with all of that as an explanation, Chris and I, are not actually critical race theorists
0: i'm sure this will be deeply shocking to everyone in our
1: audience all of that is the presuppositions that that this book comes with and that's uh basically we could have also Mm -hmm. just read you chapter one but this is more interesting (laughs) and i mean that only in the sense that like me reading into the microphone is not very interesting to you (laughs) right the the text itself is interesting in how it presents the argument very well done literature review i aspire this is an aside in my academic work, I always have trouble with literature reviews. It's literally the thing that reviewers hate the most about my work. So, like a nicely done literature review is a thing of beauty. It <laughs> oh. is it is so it's hard to do well, and she does it well from a technical perspective, this is a really nice literature review, and I appreciate it
0: and in general, with the slight exception of chapter three, which we I think we'll touch on yeah. briefly later, just in our evaluation of the book as a whole. This is a very well-done yeah. academic work, period. Yeah. It's lucid. It's readable. It makes its argument fairly coherently yeah. and fairly tightly. The fact that it's trying to bring these two disparate fields of critical race theory and surveillance studies together and does that as effectively as it does, whether or not you ultimately agree with her conclusions. It's, right. it's effectively presented in a mere yeah. 164 pages yeah. It's, it's good writing. It's well done. It's good writing in a very particular mode and tone. Yep. It is very much an academic work speaking, as Stephen said in the first episode, one academic, to others. Yep. But it's well written and clear given that mode. I've read much, much worse.
1: And I, I think in particular, one of the things that um, critical theory in general will mm. rely on is this idea of lived experience. So things that cannot be falsified, this literally happened to me, you can't say that it didn't happen to me. And this is because in, uh, uh-huh. in so many ways that we could recount that you can probably think of, evidence can be falsified, and data can be corrupted, and these sorts of things. And so uh, in critical theory, one of the ways that they approach the epistemology is that things that happened to you, lived experience, is something that cannot be falsified. That is a a core tenet, and that is itself, you know, philosophically debatable. There's roughly 150 years of philosophy wondering whether or not your personal experience can be falsified. David Hume, I hear you, (laughs) but uh, that's a core idea, and to the credit of this book, Brown does not actually lean that heavily on the idea of lived experience here. So it's doing critical race theory, but from a historical methodology. So this is actually not, in its truest mm-hmm. sense, a, a full-on methodological critical race experience. This is, this is using the ideas uh, as a person who says that she is a, a black feminist and, and believes these things in the service of doing right. history and contemporary analysis that points towards an argument about an academic field, surveillance studies.
0: Right. It's more in this book's case that CRT forms the usually implicit, occasionally explicit backdrop for her framing right. of other things. And But to be fair, that's an approach we sympathize with. That's almost exactly how Stephen and I approach this show. Right. We have a set of Christian presuppositions deeply connected to specifically the broadly Reformed tradition with an eye to a connection to the deep tradition of the Christian church. Yeah but we're not usually preaching sermons. You will occasionally hear it on the show from me, but in general, we're doing the same kind of thing she's doing here, which kind of makes me like what she's up to, even where I end up disagreeing. She's got a set of background, but she's trying to apply that in a way that's reasonably accessible to someone connected to contemporary issues, especially around surveillance. She's clear from the outset. She's writing as a black feminist scholar, but she's writing to the surveillance studies community, trying to get them to take a particular set of concerns seriously.
1: Yep. Yep. And so from that end, she makes a set of arguments, some of which are very convincing and some of which are not convincing. Mm -hmm. Her, Her strongest arguments are the ones where she engages with history. When she talks about the Book of Negroes, that chapter is very compelling. When she talks about the TSA, she talks about responses to, to the overwhelmingly strange, I'll just call it overwhelmingly strange, practices of the Transportation Security Authority. Those sections draw heavily on specifics and are, <laughs> are put into an argument that is clearly delineated. So there's a, there's a specific line of argument that she's pursuing, and the examples that she chooses to further her argument that she marshals as evidence make sense and actually do indeed convincingly further her argument. Right. Her weaker
0: point is really chapter three. So if you recall from our discussion in the first episode about this, chapter one really lays out the gist of her argument. Chapter two introduces the Book of Negroes and walks through some early practices of surveillance of Black people. Chapter three is about branding, and then chapter four, as Stephen just mentioned, is about the TSA. Chapter three, I would say, is pretty evenly split. When she's doing that historical work, it's very good. It's very brutal, but it's very good. When she turns to examples from the contemporary context, it's weaker... And in particular, when she tries to turn to popular culture for points of analogy, at least in my read, it really fell down. It read as perhaps the best way to summarize it was her reach exceeding her grasp. This is she turns to the idea of marketing and branding after having done a fair bit of historical work and then some investigation of biometrics. And... The turn toward sort of popular cultural analyses was a stretch, I think. And it's possible that she could make the argument she makes in that chapter effectively and well, but I think it would require more than the 40 pages she could give it in a book of this size. I think it would take a book of this size to do it well. That is, I think, in part because branding and marketing are... This is a point Stephen made to me as we were talking about this. They're just enormously deep and complicated subjects themselves. Yeah. And she really wanted to connect that etymological root of branding of human bodies as though animals, the same way we continue to brand cattle today, with branding as it plays in contemporary market economies, capitalist economies. And... I don't think it worked very
1: well. It just wasn't as convincing. No. And I think this is partially the, the pitfall of critical theory in general is that in the absence of traditional quantitative data mm-hmm. and in the mode of analysis and inquiry that critical theory is, which is interpretation... If your interpretation isn't convincing or compelling, that's that's the end of it. Like, Right. That's, you're stuck. You're stuck. Because if someone says, I don't believe you, or I don't get it, or I'm not convinced, then the only line of reasoning is more explanation and, and more interpretation. And so that's why I think Chris is right to say that she could make this argument, but it would take more work, specifically because that's how you do it if you... Right. You are doing this sort of work is you just do more interpretation and more analysis. And so I felt like the, the pop culture analysis was fine, but it was not particularly compelling. I feel like her historical work was much more compelling. She Agreed. she marshals it in a way that is uh is convincing to right. be blunt. Like I was convinced. And then in there's also some asides that uh are a bit difficult to parse. There's a section about Michael Vick, which <laughs> I kind of get the overarching idea of what was happening in this section, but the this is a section where I fully agree with Chris that we needed a lot more interpretation and analysis for it to be to for it to be lucid. Right. And she does this elsewhere too, where she will just like drop things there for you to like interpret yourself through the lens of all her previous chapters. And when you get to chapter four, this works really great because you're like, Oh, I know what she's saying here. Mm-hmm. But there's times in chapter three where you're like, I don't I don't, I don't know, know what she's saying where here. This is this isn't connecting to the previous chapters as easily as I wanted it to. Right. That's the only area where I felt like the the book did not live up to its promise is that there's yeah. the section that just seemed to be too wide of a scope for the available space
0: and in, in some ways that's unfortunate i came out of that chapter with a pretty bad taste in my mouth and on reviewing it i actually think it has some of the most interesting points of connection to things we've talked about on this show of any of the book in particular her analysis on biometrics is very insightful and very helpful and very cutting in important ways. And she suggests for better ways of handling these things, a couple pieces of basically display art in the, in one Mm. case in particular that shows ways of approaching things like fingerprint technology, but you can imagine the same on facial recognition technology that look at look at it the way it really actually is, which is as matters of likelihood rather than, as she says, assigning some infallibility to the data. So quoting here from page 117, in this way, the probabilistic ID card identifies characteristic points of the user's fingerprint that could come under dispute by a fingerprint examiner using standard finger scan technology. So it it provides a tool to the user, and it provides information in terms of the way that these kinds of algorithms and analyses actually work, which is probabilistically not these on and off white and black to use that language on purpose here approach to the data. And so there's a lot of good in the chapter, but
1: yeah, I think that that it's just a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that if she had just honed in, the same way that she hones in on the Book of Negroes and Lantern Laws in Chapter 2 and just said, we're going to talk about fingerprints, Uh, I think that could have been a a very compelling chapter.
0: Yeah. I do think that her use of pop culture and those three movies, Will Smith movies, that she pulls on in this chapter actually provide a nice lens into a way that I, I think critical race theory ends up Being insufficient to the task it has set itself, perhaps is the best way to summarize it. It's actually a feeling with which I'm very familiar. Analysis of popular culture is hard. It's a very fraught task. And I grew up in a very conservative Christian context. I'm still a fairly conservative Christian. But that context in which I grew up had a very particular approach to popular culture and that approach was to analyze every piece of media out there and categorize it in terms of what was described as worldview. Spoilers, that notion of worldview doesn't actually hold up to the way most serious philosophers have been using the term for the last century, but that's neither here nor there. The key is that every piece of media, especially popular media, was there to be dissected and seen whether it fit and could support the particular framing of Christian worldview that we had, or whether it was in opposition to it, or some mix of the two. And every element in the movie was diced out along those axes. And to say the least, I find this an insufficient way of approaching art. Art does many things. Sometimes it's talking about ideas related to or connectable to the gospel, and sometimes it's not. I raised the example when I was talking through this with Stephen in the midst of reading it of the many finding God in the Lord of the Rings and finding Jesus in Harry Potter and similar
1: books like that. Yeah, but like they are Jesus actually is in Harry Potter, like that's like the whole point of this. Yeah, yeah. but
0: but the Finding Jesus in the Harry Potter books often go way beyond the places where J.K. Rowling puts the direct Christian analogies (laughs) in there. And likewise, there's a lot of Christian ideas in Tolkien. But let me tell you, Finding God in the Lord of the Rings was doing some wacky stuff in its hermeneutics of that text. And I think there's a tendency in many epistemologies, in many sociologies, in many attempts to describe all of reality, especially when you're trying to do it from what I would describe as a sort of evangelistic frame. And I say that as a Christian who does evangelize, but I recognize this as a challenge for people operating in an evangelistic way. And I think CRT operates in an evangelistic way here of wanting to grab examples and say, look, here's how they map to this sociology or this worldview that I've laid out. And, they become unfalsifiable. They become impossible to argue with. And in fact, that turn toward experience is very powerful because it's impossible to argue with, but it also leaves you... Not not quite, but that's... Right, no, 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 that's exactly where I'm going. It leaves you in a spot where if experience is unarguable with, then you can't actually get anywhere in the discussion because the meaning of an experience is in fact very, very much contentious. So you can't argue with someone that this thing happened to them, modulo issues around memory, but by and large, we're granting reliable witnesses to their own experiences. But the meanings of those things can be deeply contested. And to turn that on to the Christian community of which we're a part, rather than to point it over toward the CRT community of which Simone Brown is a part... Lots of Christians experience things that they perceive to be matters of persecution. Well, sometimes it's a matter of persecution. There are plenty of Christians around the world who experience legitimate, actual persecution. But sometimes I read stories from other Christians about how they've been persecuted, and I say, Bro, you didn't get persecuted. You were a jerk. And somebody called you on being a jerk. And then you kept being a jerk, and you lost your job because you were a jerk. It didn't have to do with being a Christian. Experience as a fundamental guide to how we understand things is limited. It is real. It is incontestable that you got fired from your job, but the reasons and the mechanics for it are not reducible to your experience of it or your interpretation of that experience. And that makes the CRT project very complicated at best, in my view. In the same way that, the project of a lot of conservative Christians has been complicated at best. And I, I offer that as a point of difference that I have with CRT. And I would say that as a totalizing sociology and epistemology, narratives of oppression and marginalization are incomplete. They're insufficient to the task. They are Part of reality, though. And so I think there's also a tendency, very current, especially among other conservative evangelical white Christians right now, and not only there, but especially there, to say, because narratives of oppression and marginalization are incomplete and insufficient to the task, dismiss all of this, in particular because it overreaches. Whereas I want to say, and I know Stephen has a thought to pick up here, so I'm going to just finish my my monologue and let him run with it. But (laughs) I would say that we have an enormous amount to learn here because I think it's actually more sufficient to the task of certain kinds of analyses than a lot of what has passed for thinking on these kinds of issues among my fellow conservative white evangelicals for a long time. I don't have to take everything that CRT says to find it a profitable lens to think about these things.
1: Yeah. And so uh, one of the ways that, that I was talking about this with Chris when we were discussing it was that looking at, at the world through CRT, even if you are not a, uh, a critical race theorist, and while Simone Brown mentions critical theory and mentions intersectionalism, I was checking through, and I'm not sure if she actually uses the phrase critical race theory. So to to that note, we should say that this is, again, our interpretation. Yep. I think it's a fair interpretation. I don't think it's an unwarranted one, hmm. but uh, I wanted to note that I don't think that phrase actually appears in the book. I think that's a fair thing to call out, yeah. But I feel comfortable talking about it in relation to that because of the, some of the scholars that she points out and mm-hmm. the ways that she talks about blackness and these sorts of things. But as you look through the lens of critical race theory or the lens of black feminist intersectionality or any of the, these sorts of forms of analysis that are heavily reliant on lived experience, right? regardless of whether or not you agree with the sociology of it, they form a different way of looking. And this is particularly valuable because that's literally the point of this book, right. is that there's a different way of looking and there's a different way of understanding looking that we could be profitably gained by if we, if we look in this way. And so it's, it's basically a, a perfect book to be doing this sort of, of analysis with, the one that we're doing, not the one that she's mm-hmm. doing, to say this is about looking. It's about seeing, and it's about ways of seeing, and it's about the differences in how people who are of this type of persuasion and that type of persuasion see things, Right, like the positions that people operate under just in the world allow us to see different things. And when you have these different ideas as a background, you can see the same things from different perspectives and bring them to the attention of people that don't see it that way. And you can get a fuller picture. So insofar as Chris says that it's you know, not fully sufficient, almost everything else isn't fully sufficient right. either right. without this particular vision. And so there's, you know because there's plenty of ways in that data which is mentioned throughout this book mm-hmm. is just interpretation. Like it is itself it, when she points out the 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 biometric fingerprint scanner, she says like it's literally just doing a certain type of interpretation. It's doing probabilistic interpretation. Right. Well, you know, we want to make those two sorts of things different because we like computers because <laughs> <laughs> we do but it, 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 they are issues of interpretation. And so I don't mean this to say that it's interpretation all the way down because that's a whole other episode. But there are ways in which the sorts of interpretation that are being done here are profitable for other sorts of interpretation that are done elsewhere. Right. And the the real existent thing, the the experience or the object or the technology is seen by different angles and can be profitably seen from different angles and i think particularly for this book she's trying to say we need to look at surveillance not only as a universalized thing of those watching versus those watched but who are the people watched and how does their experience of being watched affect this idea that there is a panopticon right and so I think that it allows you a different way of seeing. You may not like that way of seeing. That's totally fine. Like the fact of interpretation all the way down means that like you're going to be selecting and interpreting and you may interpret. This is not a way I want to interpret. Totally fine. But thinking about how it works and what it's trying to say, that's the goal. Yeah. That's the goal of of connecting these various viewpoints in this book is to consider a different viewpoint.
0: And I would say Literally. that in particular there even if you deeply disagree 100% with her priors even if you think that critical race theory should be wholly rejected which as we've said we don't we think it has valuable insights to bring to the conversation even if it currently is often overreaching even if you disagree with us and you think it should be rejected out of hand This book probably has some valuable things that you could take and reframe and see Mm -hmm. things differently and think about how we see things in this context of surveillance and counter surveillance and how that applies in seeking justice. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you think that there is no ongoing systemic or structural racism that those concepts don't even hold. I talk to people like this on a semi-regular basis. I disagree with them, but maybe you think that. Even so, much of what is said here about how surveillance and counter-surveillance work are still things we can learn from and apply in the context of how we approach broader structural issues that affect everyone in your framing of it, that affect...
1: Even if you don't think that there's structural racism, can we please make webcams that recognize black people? Right, right, just at
0: very basic levels like that. And also at the extremely broad applicability of how we treat things like fingerprints and facial recognition software and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. making sure that those do accurately work across populations or that we just reject them across populations because we think they're equally bad for everyone. There's a lot of things in this book that are really valuable and helpful. I gave the example around biometrics and fingerprints and showing a degree of confidence rather than just saying... On or off, you match or you don't. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are useful takeaways here. And that was one of the things I enjoyed most about this book is despite the fact that I do end up disagreeing with her about her priors in ways that I could flag up at various points in the book. I learned an enormous amount from the book anyway, and I reconsidered certain things, or considered for the first time certain things that I hadn't thought about previously. To give one example, sort of in closing for myself, she talks about literature that was put together during the abolitionist era to highlight the plight of people being brought across the Atlantic for chattel slavery. And she notes that the people to whom this was being addressed were white, wealthy abolitionists, and so the message was framed for them. This isn't necessarily the way that the same people would have framed their message to get it across to other Black people— or to poor white people, or to anyone else. And just that contextuality and that context sensitivity was a thing that I think gets overlooked a lot of times when we talk about those kinds of documents and situate them in their historical context, and that was valuable. I learned something. So even insofar as I have some deep epistemological disagreements with her about these things, I'm glad I read this book. I learned a lot.
1: Mm. And from, from my perspective like i said i had fewer like moments of qualm mm-hmm. not to say none but i had fewer moments of qualm than chris and i think that's particularly because i've 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 been working adjacent to some of these concepts like surveillance for a long time and so while i am not a surveillance studies scholar some of the things that you need to know in this book are about holes in surveillance studies and so there's a whole lot of backdrop that the the author is expecting you to know because there are aspects of black feminism that are just not really fully explained. There are lots of aspects of surveillance studies that are not fully explained. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason for that is because this author is attempting to speak to an audience that already does know surveillance studies and is not particularly interested in or at least is presumed to be by the text, I don't know if they are or not, is presumed to be by the text to be not that interested post-literature review in the specifics of black feminism. Right. And so I think there's, for me, an interesting thing here that I was able to read this as an interdisciplinary scholar and say, ah, this is an effective way to take one discipline's work and mm-hmm. point it towards another discipline. Mm-hmm. Because as an interdisciplinary scholar myself, I struggle with this greatly, which is how do I make these ideas, which I think are necessary for this other field that I'm not in, meaningful to this other field. Right. And so as a methodological study, I was very intrigued by mm-hmm. it because I wanted to see how does this thing work? How does it go? And I think it's a really great work on that front.
0: Right where it's less compelling is when you're a total outsider kind of watching the conversation, I think, because, and that's where I'm coming from. And to, to Brown's credit, she did in her introduction, do the same thing I do on many of my blog posts and explain who her assumed audience was. And so there's a very real sense in which I'm, I'm not the person she's writing to. It's not her job therefore, to persuade me. She can assume some of right. these things because she's writing a sort of, not quite in-house, but neighbor-to-neighbor argument, and I'm mm-hmm. the guy living in a different neighborhood entirely. And so there's a fairness to that. Like You can't tackle yeah. everything in every book.
1: Right, right. And so I think that it's a really solid book. I think it's a, like we've said, a book where you can look at some things and be like, "Yeah, that didn't convince me," and like, it didn't convince you. Like that's part of the, right. That's fine. The way it that works. happens. Yeah, it happens. We we
0: certainly fail to convince you sometimes, listeners. We're sure.
1: Yeah. Oh man, are you saying we don't have a hundred percent score rate?
0: I mean, I disagree with some of myself in previous episodes. At this point, so you know, Oh,
1: man. I Yeah, I was looking through some old episodes recently. Like, ooh, I don't know if I want to listen to that one again, but. <laughs> So it it is a compelling book. It's a difficult book. Uh, No matter who you are, it's a difficult book um, in terms of the content. She is unflinching in her description of uh, difficult, literally painful, literally abusive tactics. And so it is is a hard book to read, but we found it very profitable. The music at the beginning of the episode was
0: Solly Lento by Bois and the Angstromers.
1: Yeah, we used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, you can do so at Patreon slash winning slowly, or you can send us some money directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so via email, hello at winningslowly.org. I will respond to that very quickly. Chris will nod <laughs> in affirmation. Mm, yes. Pretty much. That looks like a good response. At least that's what I imagine you doing when I email back. Pretty don't, much. Don't, the occasional my... <laughs> thinking face emoji of, ah, uh,
0: I don't know, but I don't have enough time today to pick that up, so I'm just going to let it go.
1: I do bracket those out sometimes, <laughs> no. though. You do, and I always appreciate I it. Yeah, I'm just speaking for myself here, but that is to say we do respond to all of those. Sometimes in more detail than you want. Uh so <laughs> new shout out to our listener who I gave a like 1500 word response to a 20 word question. It's true. Um, he did that thing. And I, it was really interesting. <laughs> you can also reach out on Facebook uh or Twitter um uh, winning slowly on both of those. So
0: next month we will be reading Ursula Franklin's The Real World of Technology and we hope you'll join us in that we've really enjoyed hearing from those of you who've read along with us The Real World of Technology is a much lighter read than this and it's comparable in length to this so if this one ended up being a hard slog for you we understand, we hope you did it anyway we also hope that The Real World of Technology will be a little easier going for you and that you'll join us in it and until then